Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer podcast, recorded live from the University of Vermont's Continuing and Distance Education Department with your host, Greg Dunkley. Whether you're looking to break into the craft beer industry or start your own brewery, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will discuss all aspects of the craft beer industry from sales, operations, marketing, trends, and analysis with industry experts and thought leaders. If you'd like to be part of the show, please call 929-477-1757. And now here's your host, Greg Dunkel. Well, good afternoon. Uh, this is Gregory Dunkling. You're listening to the Business of Craft Beer Blog Talk Radio Show. Uh, we're coming to you live from Burlington, Vermont. I'd like to welcome today's guest, Bart Watson, Chief Economist at the Brewers Association based in Boulder, Colorado. I can't think of a better guest than Bart uh, for this dis- discussion and this series, uh, Bubble or Sustainable Growth, Examining Today's Craft Beer Industry. Of course, uh, the BA, uh, Brewers Association, generates much of the analysis that we all see from the craft industry, and BARD is at the center of this number crunching and trend watching, and we're going to be talking about uh, some of those those reports and and writings today. So welcome, BARD. Thanks for having me, Greg. Great to be on the show. So you've uh, you've addressed um, the so-called bubble, which I just referenced, um, analogy that some use to caution us about the rapid growth of the craft sector over the last 10 years or five years in particular. Um, I'm fairly certain that we've all encountered many people, uh, both inside the industry as well as out, who uh, continue to fear a bubble in craft. Uh, you've uh, offered a compelling and contrary perspective. Um, and are we heading in the direction of a bubble, or do you see a, a double-digit uh, craft beer growth as being sustainable? Well, I'm not sure that double-digit craft beer growth is sustainable in the long run, but I certainly don't think that anything we've seen suggests a bubble. Um, you know, first, it's worth spending you know two seconds to talk about what a bubble is, where asset prices or you know, investment gets out of whack with what the future can actually be. Um, and you know, when you look at the craft brewing market, it's something that's built on fundamental demand shifts. We're seeing people demand fuller flavored products, more variety. They want products from small and independent local brewers. And that's the opposite of a bubble. People are building because there are market opportunities. Now, you know, are we reaching a point where maybe there's a little too much capacity or some of the valuations may be getting a little bit high as, as money moves in. You know, perhaps we're seeing little, little pockets here and there where there's overinvestment. But um, that doesn't change the, the basic fact that we've seen fundamental growth based on demand trends. And, and that's a sign of a, you know, a well-developed market rather than a bubble. I think you, you've also described uh, sort of the caring capacity of communities. I, I, re, I remember 10,000 uh, uh, populations as being uh, 
uh, uh, markets large enough to sustain a craft brewery. Could you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of where breweries are, are located now versus 10 or 15 years ago? Sure, you know, and we, we've seen a real diversity in that. So 10 or 15 years ago, I think, you know, most of your listeners probably had a pretty decent conception of their head of, of where breweries were located, you know, college towns, you know, urban areas, and, and that's really diversified in recent years. Now it's about 78% of 21 plus adults live within 10 miles of a brewery, and you don't get a stat like that unless you have breweries in the vast majority of communities around the country. Um, you know, in terms of what type of population could support a brewery, I think that's going to vary. You know, different communities are going to have different levels of support uh, for, you know, local businesses, for beer drinking in general, um, you know, different levels of affluence. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all. But given the new business model that we're seeing from many breweries, where they're very small, locally focused, distributing in a pretty tight area, selling a high percentage through their taproom or brew pub, um, you know, that's that's something that a neighborhood in a large city can support or a small town can support a business like that. It looks more like a bar or restaurant in terms of the geographic population that's needed to support it. So, um, you know, fears about number of breweries, I think, are often overblown because people haven't wrapped their head around what the new brewery business model really is for many of these businesses. Yeah, I, fo- I found your uh, analogy there with restaurants, high-end restaurants, to be quite compelling and and certainly i've never heard anyone complain about too many good quality high end restaurants in in our communities around here yeah and you know one one thing that always strikes me is when you hear people talk about how there are too many breweries or in a bubble they always had butt statements. Well, my local breweries are great, but I think there are too many. And, you know, I think that shows that when you look locally at these markets, it's hard to find cases where, you know, there are too many breweries. And, and you know, occasionally breweries do go out of business because of general business challenges or, or competition. But even in places where we see a very high density, Portland, Oregon, San Diego County, um, you know, there are still opportunities for businesses that can differentiate themselves to move in and, and find a place. So let's examine uh, the proliferation of craft and how it's playing out. Uh, we've heard that some large chain stores are, are saying, we don't have time to meet with every brewery representative or distributor representing yet another brewery to learn about their products. Um, some restaurant bars are actually decreasing the number of ta- tap handles. There's concern about freshness of beer, particularly if some of the products are not moving. And one large restaurant group that we've recently uh, talked with say, stated that they plan to carry some of the top national craft brands plus local products, but they intend to drop some of the lesser known brands that they've carried in the past. What are you hearing on the retail side? Are, are there warning signs out there that suggest a saturation in the market? And of course, we're talking about some markets, not all markets. Yeah, and I think you're right to add that caveat. You know, but I'm hearing similar things that particularly in the on-premise when you're talking about taps that, you know, competition is getting fierce out there and, you know, a lot of of retail chains in particular, but you know, just general the the retail channels are starting to, you know, see a slowdown in the number of tap handles they're adding, the number of brands they pick up, and this won't be one size fits all. I think one thing we're going to see going forward is that you know, a lot of chains have taken a very similar approach, and now we're seeing, you know, chains really look at their clientele and, um, you know, alter their offerings 
in a corresponding manner. So for some, you know, 40 may not be right, and they're going to scale it back to 25 or 15. And for others, they may go the different direction. They may say that, well, our clientele comes in, and they expect 60 or 80. Um, and, you know, we're going to be a place that you come in because you know you're going to have a wide variety of choices, and, and they're going in the other direction. So, you know, I think some of this is the retail uh, channels reestablishing, you know, what their real value proposition is to their customers and, and figuring out where craft fits within that. But that's, it's certainly a challenge for small brewers. Um, you know, one thing to, to tie in here is the rise of, you know, what some people are calling the own premise, but, you know, on-site sales for breweries. I think one reason that's going up is because competition in these other established retail chains is has also increased, but that there's still a lot of demand for products from these small breweries, and so they're fulfilling it themselves. Uh, we're talking with Bart Watson, Chief Economist at the Brewers Association from Boulder, Colorado. If you would like to join the conversation, the phone lines are open. Uh, please call us at 929-477-1757. That's 929-477-1757. Um, how do you view the sustainability of this growth? Uh, 13% uh, this Past year, 18% in 2013 and 14 on the production volume side. Um, some an industry analysts and journalists I've spoken with are predicting in the near term a somewhat slower growth rate, more in the perhaps 10 to 12% range. Uh, what does the Brewers Association project from coming years? Well, we don't do forward projections, but I think those analysts who, you know, anticipate slower growth percentages, you know, are, are, are generally correct. Um, you know, we're, that's what we're seeing in the market as well, a little bit of slowing growth. Some of that's natural progression of a maturing industry. And some of that is, I think, um, you know, in general, the industry needs to shift their heads from thinking in percentage terms to thinking in absolute terms. You know, we just talked about crowded retail channels and I think that's more true on-premise than off-premise, but, um, you know, there's only so much new volume that, you know, distributors and retailers can take on every year. And so, you know, what we've seen in recent years is two and a half to three million barrels of incremental growth for the industry. And, you know, I think that's a, a good baseline looking forward. And if you add that same absolute value every year, that's going to be a slowing percentage. So if we're at, you know, last year we were at 24 and a half million barrels, you know, 10% growth on that is, you know, 2.45 million barrels, which doesn't strike me as an unreasonable estimate, but is a much slower growth percentage than that same absolute growth would have been the year before. So, you know, I do think it's it's going to be a, a part of the industry that we're going to see slowing growth just because the overall base of craft is now so big, it's it's nearly impossible to grow at 18% every year. You know, your answer to that question maybe begins to answer the next question, but, but let, let me give it a try. Um, Based on the Brewers Association uh, statistics, um, from 2007 to 2015, the average production measured in barrels has been in decline for microbreweries. And of course, they, they are defined as those producing 15,000 barrels per year or less and 75% sold offsite. Um, the average was uh, 2,290 uh, barrels in 2007. And it is uh, 1,638 in 2015, or, or about a 29% decline. Uh, what might this tell us about the craft beer industry, if anything at all? Well, I think it tells us the business models are changing. Um, you know, we're continuing to see an evolution of what it means to be a brewery. And, 
you know, if you look back, you know, further than 2007, you know, 20 or 30 years, I think, you know, most breweries, if they weren't a brew pub, which has always been very locally focused, you know, had a model of uh, moving up toward kind of regional distribution. Um, and, and now we're seeing a, a new business model, particularly for microbreweries, partly due to regulatory shifts, you know, partly due to changing consumer preferences, where, you know, many microbreweries are very content to stay small, locally focused, you know, distribute a some percentage via their tap room and the rest locally, um, you know, either via self-distribution or with a distributor. And, and we've really seen, I think, you know, more people who look at that niche and are, are very comfortable in that, um, looking to, to stay small and, and be, you know, a local player. Um, the flip side of that, too, is that from 2007 to 2015, we saw the breweries that did want to take advantage of the opportunities that existed nationally, we saw a lot of them move up to regional. And so, you know, when you're calculating the average micro right. size, suddenly they drop out as they get bigger and, and, and disappear into the right. regional set. So I, I think that's part of it, too. But most of it is driven by, you know, new entrants, which that's, I guess, a third thing we could add in, which, you know, there's a lot of breweries in their first or second year there that might eventually pull that number back up as they grow a little bit more and fill out what they want to be. Um, but I think most of it is just breweries that are content being small, content being 1,000, 2,000 barrels, selling, you know, 10 or 20% of that out of their tap room and the rest to local retailers. And, and that can be a good living for a lot of people. Well, while a number of microbreweries are experiencing very healthy growth, I mean, you look at those numbers, uh, some 20, 30, even 50% growth or, or greater, um, and that's you know year-to-year production growth. Uh, meanwhile, some by our calculations, 20% of microbreweries have seen either outright declines in production last year. We're talking about just looking at last year's numbers. Or they're in that sort of zero to five percent uh, growth range, um, and for regional breweries, uh, that it's even slightly higher. About twenty-eight percent are in that category. Now, clearly, one year doesn't make a trend, uh, but does this suggest that as competition grows, a number of breweries may experience much slower growth and tightening margins? And as you just suggested, maybe that's just fine. Uh, I think it does. I mean, competition is certainly going to increase and has already increased. So I think, you know, slower growth for, for many businesses is going to be the new normal. Um, you know, some of that zero to 5% category are breweries that have reached the point where they're comfortable and no longer want to grow. Um, so I think that's, a, you know, again, something that's not necessarily negative. Um, you know, the, the breweries in decline is you know, a little worrisome, but it's also, you know, part of a competitive industry. Um, you know, if we look at the number of restaurants in the country and you know, how many of them, you know, lose sales year over year, I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher than 20 percent, you know, or, or you know, bars. Um, so in a competitive industry, you're going to have people who, you know, occasionally do lose sales. And, you know, some of those businesses will figure out why and write the ship and move back up. And, and some of them will go out of business. That's that's part of market competition. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of microbreweries who have found the business model that they're comfortable with and are, you know, staying at a level that, that they're, they're happy to be at. Um, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. So gr- growth for the sake of growth is uh, what you're suggesting is, is um, not necessarily the model that is going to work for, for many or even most. Yeah. And, you know, one thing to add too, is that growing a brewery is really expensive. You know, you talk to brewery owners, and one thing they will tell you, and you hear over and over, is you don't make any money when you're growing. Growing requires new capital investments. It requires, if you're, you know, moving further away, new investment in salespeople, you know, new investments in marketing. 
Um, and so for a brewery to actually make money and you know, put food on the table for the owner um, often requires slowing that growth or stopping that growth. And that's the point at which suddenly you know, those costs don't increase. You can start you know, drawing on, on some of the profits and, and paying yourself a wage. Um, and so for many brewers, you know, that's actually a, a great thing when they've, they've gotten to the point where they built out to where they were trying to get. They have their defined area where they're distributing, um, and they can slow things down, and then they can enjoy the business a little bit more. So you seem to be suggesting a model here of uh, grow in a, a reasonable market that you've defined for your products, um, for your brand, build that out, uh, sustain it over time before you think about moving into new markets, uh, which may be within your state or could be neighboring states. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, and you know, not every mo- that model isn't going to work for everyone. Different breweries are going to have different models. If you have, you know, a niche product that travels, you know, maybe you're going to use a uh, a different model. But um, you know, one of the important things, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more to you know craft beer lovers, is local. Um, and so having you know a market that you can control and define is is going to give you market advantages as well. It's also great to have a market where you can hop in your car, and if there's a problem with an account, you can show up. You can make sure that your accounts are cleaning their lines properly. You can, you know, run some kegs over if it's a self-distribution state to a place that's running out. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to to having local control over your market. Um, and, you know, I think that's that's clearly the dominant model, not, not in terms of volume, but in terms of number of breweries these days. And, you know, many breweries that's not going to work for. They have greater ambitions or, um, you know, that they're looking for something different or their products are, are, are different than the rest of the markets. But, um, you know, certainly I think that's one of the, the archetypes that we're seeing emerge these days. So let's take a break and bring in a caller. Um, uh, please, 9629, please announce yourself and uh, tell us where you're calling from. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I'm actually calling from Burlington, Vermont. And um, I just had a quick question for Bart. Thank you so much, um, by the way. But um, here I go. So it um, it appears that many breweries are adding like a brew pub like feel, tap rooms or tasting rooms, are and we're experiencing this in the Northeast. But are you seeing this as an emerging trend across the country? That's a great question, Sarah. And yes, certainly. Um, you know, I think there are a number of reasons for this. Um, you know, first and foremost, the margins on a tap room are are much better than in distribution. Selling pints over the bar is going to uh, make a brewery, you know, more money, capital for expansion if you're looking to expand or just for the bottom line if, if you're not looking to expand. Um, but I think secondly and, and equally important, it provides a connection with beer lovers that's unparalleled. There's nothing like having a beer over a, a bar and seeing the tanks where that beer was made right behind the bar. Um, and I think there, there's something that really appeals to people across place, not just in Vermont, but all across the country that, that people are excited about you know, that business model and, and one reason we're seeing it take off in popularity. Um, finally, you know, one thing we're seeing is that these types of locations are emerging even for larger breweries that distribute a lot. Um, and I think that's because it also provides them great immediate market feedback. Um, you can try out new small batch beers and see if they're liked. And if they're liked, then you can scale them up. And so it provides that immediate connection with beer lovers that, you know, is very difficult to often get in the mar- market in the same way than if you have a tap room or, or a brew pub. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for, Thanks for your call. Um, here's a topic we're hearing uh, about quite often now. Um, does craft beer have meaning anymore? Uh, when I hear people raising this question, often it's from brewery owners themselves uh, who feel craft has become mainstream. So why use craft? And 
There are others who are concerned about the big brewers buying into craft and distorting the definition. Um, Rob Todd of Allagash uh, at the local craft beer conference uh, in Philadelphia referred to indie brewers uh, interchangeably with craft uh, brewers. Uh, does the Brewers Association have a position on this topic? Um, we do, and and you know I should say the Brewers Association defines what a craft brewer is, not what a craft beer is. You know we recognize that beer lovers may have different interpretations of what craft beer means to them, but you know we think it's important to have a craft brewer definition, um, partly for our own internal working. So we define a craft brewer as small, independent, and traditional, um, and you know using that definition. A allows me and my job to produce statistics. To produce a data set, you have to know what's in the data set and what's out. Um, and you know, obviously there may be shades of gray these days, but just because there are shades of gray doesn't mean you can't tell black from white. Um, we also think it's important in the marketplace. Um, you know, There are advantages, and we can talk more about this, there are advantages that non-independent brewers have in the marketplace that truly independent brewers don't. And you know, so for our work, the Brewers Association works to promote the interests of small and independent brewers to promote and protect um, you know, we need to know who those independent brewers are that we're going to bat for in the marketplace and on Capitol Hill. Um, so we think the definition that we use is still relevant. It's important. Um, and it's important to make people aware of, you know, what truly independent brewers are and, and why they matter for their local communities. Great. Thank you. Um, can you uh, describe how craft consumers may be changing, if at all? Uh, we know that there's been much uh, written about millennials and they're drawn to flavor and freshness, and they certainly have been major drivers of, of craft. Um, what, what has your research shown for other audiences? What about women or Hispanic consumers? Um, well, we're seeing it really diversify. Um, so, um, you know, I, I like to joke that 10 or 20 years ago, you know, craft, uh, craft consumers really looked like me. They were, you know, bearded white males who were overly educated. Um, and, you know, what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years is that's really changed that, you know, increasingly and it's, you know, we can still we can still point to, you know, craft people being a little bit higher socioeconomic status on average. Um, you know, generally whites are still a little bit overrepresented, um, but that's starting to change. We're seeing more women come into the category, you know, particularly young women, uh, 21 to 34. Um, we're seeing more Hispanics come into the category, certainly. Um, and Hispanics really break down uh, based on um, um, how long, what their acculturation level is, how long they've been in the country, you know, how much they, they look like kind of, you know, general American culture and more acculturated Hispanics actually consume craft at an index that's pretty equal to the general population. Whereas the least acculturated Hispanics, you know, more recent migrants um, tend to consume craft less, which makes sense, a little higher price point on average. Um, you know, but we are seeing it diversify, and I think that makes sense. As we move more mainstream, you know, Kraft had 12% of the market by volume last year. You're just generally going to represent um, the larger population a little bit more, and I would expect that to continue as, as you know, craft brewers integrate themselves into their communities and become a more important part of beer culture in this country. We're talking with Bart Watson, Chief Economist for the Brewers Association. If you would like to join the conversation, Please uh, call us at 929-477-1757. Again, that's 929-477-1757. Um, I wanted to explore for a second um, uh, something you've written about. Um, it's following the trend of what consumers want uh, versus differentiating uh, one's brewery from others. Um, of course, the trend approach is 
intended to pay close attention to what is selling and offering a portfolio that matches that demand. I recently spoke with a, a VP of marketing for a brewery, and after resisting the urge to produce an IPA, it just wasn't their their brand, um, they finally relented and added this to their portfolio. Uh, yet you've written about the need for breweries to differentiate. Uh, talk about this trend versus niche uh, debate, and what does it actually mean to differentiate in today's market? Sure. and. You know, I'll start by saying that this, again, is not one size fits all. Different breweries are going to have different abilities to act in the marketplace. And so, you know, some breweries may have the ability to execute, to see a trend, to act on it, to get out in front of it while there are still market opportunities. But, you know, for your average small local brewer, you know, trying to keep up with trends, at least in distribution, is going to be very difficult because there are lots of other breweries who are doing the same. And in many cases, they're going to get out-competed. So, you know, differentiation is offering products that are unique in some way that stand out. And, you know, when we think about more crowded retail, you know, one of the things that brewers are increasingly going to have to do is come in and tell their story and why it's different. And 10 or 20 years ago, you know, I don't make American lager and I'm a local brewer. That was different. And that's not true anymore. I mean, that's not going to be enough to convince a retailer to put your beer on tap. It's not going to be enough to have a distributor, you know, pick you up and say, okay, this is something new and different in my portfolio. And so, you know, brewers increasingly need to think about what do I do that's different? What do I do that stands out? You know, there are hundreds of beer styles out there. Um, How can I pick some that, you know, I'm passionate about and I think will, you know, find a, a niche market. And if you're small, again, you can, you can really focus on these niche markets. You don't have to be going after, you know, the same people that, um, you know, a regional craft brewer is. And, and you can find ways to stand out. Maybe that's incorporating local ingredients. Maybe that's, you know, picking a couple of styles that, you know, are selling well, but maybe not as well as IPA. Maybe it's, you know, making an IPA, but finding a way to tie it in, with local products or using a hop that no one else in the marketplace is using and getting out in front of that. So um, I think there are a lot of different strategies here, but as competition increases, doing the same thing as everyone else means you have to do it better or faster or cheaper. And for many breweries, that's going to be very, very difficult. And so the only thing left is to do it differently. Yeah. In in the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer uh, certificate program, our students, which uh, they come from all over the U.S. and out of country as well, they um, they wrestle with this this question. Many of them are working on developing business plans for new breweries, um, and they spend lots of time on this particular topic of of what you know who are they, what's their brand, what's what's the message they want to convey to to their their local or regional market. Um, so it definitely consumes a lot of thought. Um, you've mentioned, um, and we've all read that local is still a huge part of what's driving craft brewers. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted to talk about mergers and acquisitions because a conversation about today's industry would be incomplete without um, a little focus on that. How does the M&A market impact this issue of, of local and at least from the standpoint of perception? And how do you think a, a large craft brewery now owned 50% or some large percent by an international beer producer will be perceived. Uh, While some are in the just drink good beer, who cares where it comes from camp, uh, others seem to care deeply about the people behind their craft beer, 
and prefer locally made products. You know, I think some of this depends on, you know, what those companies do in their local markets, you know, after the acquisition. Um, you know, we're doing some research right now with Nielsen on this and, and trying to gauge, you know, consumer perceptions once a brewery is purchased and, and what that will do for, for their purchase decisions. But, you know, as you said, local is an incredibly important uh, part of, of beer drinking and, and now in particular for people who are buying from craft brewers. Um, you know, basically about 70% of the general public and even more of, of 21 to 34-year-olds say that local factors into their purchase decision. That's not saying that they're only picking local, but that when they walk up to a supermarket shelf or picking a beer on, on tap at a bar, one of the things they're thinking about is which of these options are local. And that makes sense. They want to spend money and have it stay in their local community. Local means fresh, and fresh beer is generally better with some exceptions on particular styles that are meant to age. But, you know, most beer is, is better as fresh beer. Um, and so local has become very powerful. To what does this, you know, what changes when they're acquired? I mean, I think we can, again, look at, you know, some of the things that, that drive local in the first place, you know, freshness and being produced locally. You know, are those brands still produced locally? Some of the large brewers have taken brands and then they make them in other facilities. Maybe then, hmm. you know, people lose some of that local connection. Are they still doing events in the community? Are they still, you know, employing people in community or is the headquarters being moved, you know, somewhere else? You know, I think these are the types of things that, you know, we're still going to see how they play out. Um, but certainly from some of the initial, um, you know, initial deals that we've seen done, there has been some local backlash in some of these places. The large brewers are betting that doesn't matter and that the increased market opportunities that they can bring to their acquired brewers outweigh any local backlash. Um, you know, I think 10 Barrel is probably a good example of this. I don't know if you're getting 10 Barrel in Vermont yet, but it's certainly made its way to the East Coast now. And, you know, AB's bet is that, any loss of sales in Bend is outweighed by the incredible opportunities that they can bring to that, that brand all across the country. And so they're willing to, to lose some of that local connection to make it a, a larger brand. And if they, if they keep the, um, the key uh, people uh, in place, the staff who, who founded these breweries um, and allow them autonomy, um, then it would seem that that that's a model that maybe is different from 15, 20 years ago when there were some acquisitions that didn't work out so well. Yeah, and, and we'll see. I mean, I think it's too early to play the, you know, what will these deals look like, you know, 10 or 15 years down the road game. You know, often there are, you know, in the deals, there are non-competes initially, and there are, you know, are agreements that, you know, the owners will stay on for a certain point of time. So, you know, it's hard to know. And, and I should also say that, you know, the different companies who are doing the acquiring are, are approaching this very differently. So there isn't, again, one model, you know, there may be an AB model that develops, but there could also be a, a different model from other acquirers. Um, you know, certainly that's an important part of these brewery stories. And so there's an incentive for the acquirer to, um, you know, continue to keep as much continuity as possible. I mean, obviously that's how those brands were built in the first place. But I think there are always challenges when someone else comes in. They're going to have other goals. They're going to have other things they see that these brands bring that, you know, maybe weren't part of the initial um, identity of that brand. So it's always a challenge when, when a brand is acquired to keep that same spirit as before. Sometimes it creates new opportunities, but it also creates new challenges. Uh, certainly one of the emerging issues, it's probably been an issue for a long time, but certainly talked about a lot now is, is distribution and um, that side of the industry. Um, the Brewers Association CEO, Bob Peace, recently wrote a, a New York Times opinion piece uh, that about the potential uh, repercussions of the mega brew merger. Um, he expressed concerns about AB InBev's ability to 
quote, stifle consumer choice, end quote, and, uh, quote, choke off beer, the beer renaissance, end quote. Um, and, of course, he was meaning by that restricting access to, to the market. Of course, um, that involves distribution. And what is the Brewers Association's perspective on this important issue, and where do things stand on this planned merger? Yeah, so I think you've raised one of the, the trickiest issues for small brewers these days is access to distribution. Um, as your listeners may know, the vast majority of beer in this country goes through what's known as the three-tier distribution system, so it goes from a brewer to a distributor to a retailer. And um, in many markets, really there are two options. There is a wholesaler or a distributor who's aligned with Anheuser-Busch, and there's a wholesaler or distributor who's aligned with Miller Coors. Um, and so a, a small brewer is picking to go with one or the other as they're moving into markets. Um, you know, what concerns the Brewers Association about um, the mega brew merger or more generally some of the things that Anheuser-Busch has been doing in the market is that, um, you know, we see those as threatening the independence of the AB part of that distribution system, which is one of the two systems that small brewers use to get access to market. Um, you know, this isn't just the merger, but it's tied in with the acquisition of small brewers, um, AB's new incentive program, their VAIP program, which incentivizes distributors to carry AB brands and to not carry other competitor brands, um, which we view as a concern. And um, so one of the things we've been trying to do during the merger process is educate the DOJ about these issues. Um, it's unclear exactly where that stands. There have been uh, rumors that the DOJ will be announcing their proposed remedies um, in, in this month at some point, um, though we haven't seen those yet. So uh, we're waiting to see, but we're hoping the DOJ will look at some of these other pieces, the acquisition of small brewers, the VAIP program, and try to understand how they affect competition in the U.S. and how they affect um, the ability to have consumer pull still, where uh, beer lovers are pulling beer into the marketplace based on demand versus producer push, where AB uses its marketing muscle, um, its incredible resources globally, um, to to push products down, and, and we don't think that's right. Um, some uh, state guilds um, are promoting changes in franchise laws uh, to allow greater flexibility. Um, could you just uh, briefly describe franchise laws for our listeners and why these agreements may confine craft breweries and have become such an industry issue? Yeah, so, so these are beer-specific franchise laws, which are often an extension, an additional set of rules uh, beyond um, standard franchise laws that will exist in a state. Um, and, and mostly these took, uh, were put in place in the 1970s. Many of them were related to Coors moving across the country because Coors would often require their distributors to put investments into refrigerated warehouses. Um, and so those distributors wanted protection that if they made these investments that Coors couldn't immediately flip. Um, and, and go to another distributor. So what franchise laws do is that they lock a brewer in with a distributor. So once you sign with a distributor, it, you know, and these rules vary state by state, but it's very, very difficult to leave. You're essentially married for life. Um, so even if that distributor isn't doing a great job for you in the marketplace, it's very, very difficult to move your brands from that distributor to another distributor, which obviously then reduces the competition between distributors in a particular marketplace once they're locked in um, with these brands. You know, many of these rules maybe made sense in the 1970s when we had, you know, a very few number of brewing companies who were large and powerful and, you know, thousands and thousands of small distributors around the country. But what we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years is both an explosion in the number of small breweries in the country, as well as a consolidation in the number of distributors. So beer distributors have gotten larger and more powerful. And so we now have, you know, 
larger distributors with very small brewers who represent a very small percentage of their portfolio, but those brewers can't move even if the distributor doesn't do a good job. Um, and so, you know, what the Brewers Association and the state guilds have been proposing is either franchise lock carve-outs, so some small percentage, if you were some small percentage of a distributor portfolio, you could move for, for, um, for fair market value. So you would pay the distributor to move, but then you would be able to move. Um, or, it, it, failing that, just to let contracts predominate. So not have a law, but say, you know, you can write this in your contract, but if the contract says I can buy out for, you know, X times, you know, sales, then I can move to another distributor. And we think this makes sense. Um, it allow more competition. It allow brewers to find, you know, houses, find distributors who are more excited about their brands, and and will be good for everyone in the long run. I, I know in Massachusetts there's a a, a bill pending uh, that's along those lines that seems to be a reasonable compromise between the interests of of distributors, wholesalers that have invested, you know, time and money in building a brand and supporting a a, a, a producer but at the same time gives the producer uh, some flexibility if the relationship isn't working out. Um, how many states are you seeing, you know, sort of proposing such changes in the franchise laws? You know, these, these kind of things go in waves, so it's up or down. But, you know, I think there's, you know, half a dozen to a dozen states that are at least kicking this around. Um, there's one state, there are a few states that do not have um, up your franchise laws, but uh, there's one state that has passed reform recently, New York. Um, New York set it at um, 3%. So if you are 3% or less of a distributor's portfolio, you can move for cause, uh, for excuse me, for fair market value. Um, so fair market value means, again, you're paying the distributor uh, for the value that, that the distributor has invested in those brands and built those brands up to. Um, but if you're less than 3%, so it's not you know, necessarily harming the distributor overall, they'll still be a viable distributor, um, a small brewer can move. And you know, we think every state's going to find a, a balance that is right for them. You know, 3% um, you know, may not be the model that works for all states, but we think that's a great example of a compromise. It seems like it's worked very well. A few brands have moved um, you know, since the law uh, occurred. You know, it hasn't been a, a huge burden for distributors, so um, we think that's the kind of, of solution that we could see more states adopt going forward. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time today. Um, I'd like to thank Bart Watson for being with us for this series, uh, Bubble or Sustainable Growth, Examining Today's Craft Beer Industry. This was an interesting conversation covering uh, a wide range of uh, related topics, and we really appreciate your time, uh, Bart, and your insights. Thanks for having me. Uh, This conversation continues throughout the summer with producers, distributors, and industry analysts, uh, and we invite listeners to join us. Uh, If you ever dreamed about opening your own brewery or looking for a career change into the craft beer industry, the University of Vermont's Business of Craft Beer Certificate offers the industry-specific knowledge to make that possible. Uh, Check out our program. And until next show, enjoy the summer weather and don't forget to visit your local breweries. Good day. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.